Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The Peter Schiff Show. I'd like to thank Indeed for supporting the Peter Schiff Show podcast. You know, hiring is one of those things that you don't want to mess up. With the stakes this high, there's only one choice, and that's Indeed. You can get started now with a free $75 credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com Peter. Offers valid through March 31st, and terms and conditions do apply. Well, we had a very volatile day in the stock markets today following the release of the February non-farm payroll numbers, which I will get to later in the podcast. But the market started off on a down note, particularly the NASDAQ, which was down, I think, about 2% earlier in the morning. In fact, at that point, the NASDAQ was down 12% from its high, and it was actually negative on the year before reversing and closing positive by about 1.5%. Not quite as big as the gain that we saw on the Dow Jones. That index up 572 points, about 1.85%. The Dow only went negative slightly on a day. I think I saw it down over 100 points very briefly. It was mostly the tech sector, which was very weak, again, in the face of rising interest rates. But the big action happened yesterday on Thursday where the markets really got smoked. The catalyst being some of the comments that were made or comments that were not made by Jerome Powell, who was interviewed by the Wall Street Journal. 
And before I get to dissecting my thoughts on those comments and lack thereof, I want to talk a little bit about another price that continues to make headlines, and that is the price of oil. Oil prices continued to rise pretty much every day this week. The price was up better than 8%. Even yesterday, when everything was going down, the price of oil still went up, and most oil stocks still managed to gain on the day. In fact, oil prices closed above $66 per barrel. We're at 66.30 approximately as I am recording this podcast. That's up about another two and a half dollars on the day. We have now blown through that consolidation that I thought we would see at around $60 a barrel. It did last for a few days, but we've clearly blown through it. In fact, we're less than a dollar away from a two-year high, the price is now higher for a barrel of oil than it was in January of 2020. Now, in January of 2020, the oil price had been rising, and this is before COVID, right? So before the whole collapse in March, when the economy started shutting down and we were using all the oil, prices today are higher than we were back then. And if you remember, early in the pandemic, Everybody was talking about how oil prices were going to stay down because all they were focusing on was the lack of demand for oil because people weren't traveling as much. They weren't flying on planes. They weren't going to work. So there was a drop in demand for oil. But I kept saying on this podcast that the drop was only temporary because the people looking at demand were only looking at half of the the picture. They were forgetting about supply. I said that supply was going to come down as a result of the decline in demand, that a lot of the production, particularly here in North America, was going to come offline. OPEC also responded with reductions in supply. But not only did we get a reduction in real supply, we did get an increase in demand, not because people were driving more or flying more, but because they had more money with which to buy gasoline, courtesy of the Federal Reserve. We printed a ton of money, and that money is being used to bid up gasoline prices, you know, oil prices, not just in America, but all around the world. Everybody's got more cash, and so the price of oil is going up, which is exactly what I said was going to happen. That's why we went to an overweight position on energy stocks in our strategies during the pandemic. We went into the pandemic underweight energy and we came out of it overweight because I saw that the markets got this wrong and they didn't understand what the effect on the oil market was going to be of A, the reduction in, in, in supply and B, the increase in money supply. And now I'm starting to read more articles, too, confirming what I've been saying about the Bakken and and the shale industry in that it's not coming back. In the past, when we saw oil prices coming back up, we would quickly start drilling more oil. That is not happening. In fact, we got the Baker Hughes rig count that came out today. This was for the week ending March 5th, and the rig count in North America was down. Oil prices are surging and the rig count is down. It was 565 in the prior week and it went down to 544. And who knows, maybe it's going to go down again next week. So oil price is going up and the production of oil is not. Uh, Prices are going to go up. 
but particularly when you are printing all this money. But, you know, for all those people that think oil prices are going up because it's a sign that the economy is strengthening, think about that for a minute. The economy is not stronger today than it was in January of 2020 before the pandemic. Think of all the unemployed people that still had jobs back then. Think of all the people that were traveling that aren't traveling now. In fact, a lot of the people that have jobs now aren't driving to their office. How much less driving are Americans doing today? I mean, some Americans barely leave their home, right? They work from home. Their kids are not going to school. Everybody's staying home. And of course, if you're unemployed, you don't even have a job to go to. And people aren't traveling. People aren't taking vacations. So we are using a lot less oil. Demand is down. But prices are up, right, because supply is down and because money printing is way up. So no, these rising oil prices do not signify that the economy is strengthening. It's got nothing to do with a strong economy and everything to do with a weak oil and gas industry, but more importantly, the strong money printing. It's all the money that we're printing instead of oil that we're pumping that is responsible for Americans using less oil, but paying a lot more money for the oil that they do use. You know, in another place too, a lot of this oil is being used is for all these cargo ships that are bringing all of this material in the United States. You know, I might as well mention that we did get the trade deficit numbers today They always come out on the same day that we get the uh, jobs numbers. And I kind of think it's maybe by design that we get these numbers on the same day because the government knows nobody cares about the, the trade deficit, especially when they can release it at the same time as the jobs numbers because everybody is focusing on the jobs numbers and then nobody's paying attention to the, uh, the trade deficit. Well, One of the problems with all the jobs that we're creating, and I'll get to that later in the podcast, is that they're not in the goods producing sector. And so since we're not producing the goods that we consume, we have to import them. And that's why our trade deficit rose from $66.5 billion in December, which was actually revised up to $67 billion. It rose to $68.2 billion. That beat the estimate of 67.5. But more importantly, if you focus on the trade deficit in goods only, it was the biggest deficit in U.S. history. We imported more manufactured goods than ever before. It's also significant in that this is the January number, January 2021. That is the last month in which Donald Trump was president of the United States. He left office in January and he handed the baton to Joe Biden. He handed him that baton in the month that saw the U.S. register its biggest trade deficit in goods in the history of the country. So Donald Trump turned over an economy that was losing bigger on trade than the economy was losing when he took office. This was the signature issue of the Trump campaign. He was going to make America great again by restoring our manufacturing and reversing our, 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 our trade deficits. Instead, we are importing more manufactured goods than ever before because our manufacturing sector has never been weaker. And it got weaker under Trump. It didn't get stronger under Trump. So this was a huge failure that nobody wants to acknowledge. 
But again, nobody even reports on this. Nobody even cares. They're focused on these jobs. The problem is these are non-productive jobs. And so we have to rely on these trade deficits. But the reason I tied this in with oil is because all these goods that we don't produce have to be shipped across the ocean. And it takes a lot of energy, a lot of oil to power those cargo ships to bring all that stuff over here. So all that stuff has to be built into the price. And then, of course, all those exporters have to pay the cost of bringing all those empty containers back to Asia so they can fill them back up again with all the goods that our economy is incapable of producing. And again, these trade deficits provide more evidence of the phony nature of this recovery. It is not an economic recovery. Unemployed Americans are spending the money the Fed prints to buy the goods the rest of the world produces. That is not an economy that is a bubble. In fact, more evidence of the bubble can be seen in the government numbers. This is the week that we officially went over $28 trillion in the national debt. We'll see how many more months it takes us for the national debt to hit $30 trillion. It's certainly going to do it this year. In fact, if you look at the usdebtclock.org, you can see all these numbers. That's where I'm reading them. But look at the federal spending number. Not the official number. That's what they pretend they're spending. That number is about $6.7 trillion. You got to look at the actual federal spending number. This is the money they actually spend, not the money they're pretending to spend. Actual spending is now in excess of $8 trillion per year. Now, look at tax revenue. Total U.S. tax revenue, federal taxes, is less than $3.5 trillion. Imagine that. The government is spending $8 trillion, yet only collecting $3.5 trillion in taxes. They are having to borrow over $4.5 trillion. That's our budget deficit right now. That's the unofficial. See, the official deficit is still $3.2 trillion, but that's just a fantasy. That's a quirk of creative accounting. The actual deficit, which is the actual difference between the money the government spends and the money that it collects in taxes, that is almost $4.6 trillion. And that's before this new $1.9 trillion stimulus package is even passed. The deficit is already that big and we haven't even added all that additional spending. So the government is borrowing more money than it collects in taxes. I mean, could you imagine a household living like that where most of your income comes from borrowing and then you just spend it all? And of course, where does most of the borrowing have to come from? It comes from the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve prints money to buy bonds so that the government can spend money, so that the government checks don't bounce because if the Fed wasn't providing the cash, they would bounce. But this is the evidence of a complete bubble. I mean, this is nonsense. Everybody talking about this recovery, how the economy is reopening. Sure, part of it is reopening, but the economy itself isn't recovering at all. It's never been sicker, and the numbers prove it. The massive amount of red ink hemorrhaging from Washington, hemorrhaging on the trade deficits, this shows you we don't have a real economy. This is a disaster waiting to happen, and it's not going to be waiting much longer. You know, I'm a small business owner myself, and when it comes to hiring, I know how important each and every hire is. It's important to get it right, especially in the litigious environment that we're in now. In fact, one bad hire runs the risk of blowing up your whole organization. That's why you need Indeed. 
Indeed.com is the hiring site that helps you find quality candidates with Indeed's instant match. Indeed searches through millions of resumes in their database to help show you a great list of candidates instantly. So you can do the part that you really need faster, meeting and hiring the great people. Unlike some of the hiring sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility, delivering a quality shortlist much faster. With Indeed, there's no long-term contracts. You can pause your account at any time, and you only pay for what you need. With Instant Match, you get a great list of candidates right away. And Indeed offers four times more hires than all the other job sites combined, according to Telenest. Do you need your quality shortlist fast? Then you need Indeed. Right now, get a free $75 credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Peter. This is Indeed's best offer available anywhere. Get a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash Peter. That's Indeed.com slash Peter. Offer valid through March 31st. Terms and conditions apply. In fact, before I get to today's non-farm payroll report, let me talk about some of the economic data that came out earlier in the week after I did my last podcast, which was on Tuesday. On Wednesday, as we always do during the week where we get the uh, official uh, non-farm payroll report, we get the ADP employment report. This is a private survey, and it is private payrolls, not government payrolls. And they were looking for 165,000 jobs uh, to be created in the month of February. And instead, we only created 117,000. So the ADP report came in much weaker than expected. Even if you offset the positive revision from January, they went up from 174,000 to 195,000. So an upward revision there, but not enough to counteract uh, the miss in the February number. So that set the stage for a potential uh, disappointment for the official numbers, which we did not get, and I'll get to those numbers later. Also on Thursday, we got the ISM service sector index, right? The service sector, this is a big part of our bubble economy because while we're all servicing one another, uh, we have to import all the stuff that people who are actually producing make. So our trade deficit is bigger and bigger the more and more our economy is comprised of services. But even the service sector, that index was supposed to come in at 58.7 which would have matched the reading from January. Instead, it sank down to 55.3. So that was a big disappointment in the service sector, uh, not being nearly as strong as people had forecast. Also on Thursday, we got the weekly jobless claims. These are the new claims that are filed each week by people who are losing their jobs. The prior week was 730,000. We revised that up to 736,000 jobs. The consensus was that we would get 760,000. So we actually did a little bit better with 745,000 new claims. That's still more than the prior week, even more than the upward revision, but not quite as much as had been expected. But you have to keep this in perspective, just how bad these numbers are. If you go back to the weekly unemployment claims that we were getting during the Great Recession, right? This was following the financial crisis, uh, the Great Recession. And the reason we call it the Great Recession is because it is the worst recession since the Great Depression, right? So this was really, really bad. The very worst week of the Great Recession, the highest the weekly unemployment claims were, 
was 665,000. That was the worst week at the depths of that great recession. We are printing numbers north of that every single week. We continue to beat that number week after week after week. People are talking about this strong recovery that they think is driving up oil prices, driving up interest rates, everything is great. Yet in the middle of this strong recovery, more people are losing their jobs every single week than the number of people who lost their jobs in the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression. So what does that tell you? This is not a story about economic recovery. This is a story about how many people can lose their jobs yet keep spending anyway. In fact, a lot of people who have lost their jobs are spending more money unemployed than they were spending when they were employed. And that is because of all the money that's coming from the government. Remember, we got those huge stimulus checks that came in in January. Of course, the checks that we're about to get are much bigger than that. And in fact, we got the consumer credit numbers that came out for January. And people thought consumer credit was going to grow by $13 billion. Instead, it actually dropped by $1.3 billion. Why is that? Well, because consumers had so much government cash in January, they didn't need to use their credit cards. They had money. Or maybe some of them actually paid back some of their debt using their stimulus money. But it is the government stimulus that is driving the GDP. It's the government stimulus that is driving the trade deficits. It's all about government. This is not a real recovery. This is a bubble masquerading as a recovery. And it's amazing that nobody on Wall Street can tell the difference and see through this government smokescreen. But let me get now to the big number, the official non-farm payroll report. They came out early this morning. The consensus was for a gain of 175,000 jobs. And the prior month was very weak. There was only 49,000 jobs created then. So they were looking for a pickup. Instead, we got 379,000 jobs. That number was actually well above even the high end of the range. You had a range out there anywhere from minus 100,000 jobs to plus 312,000. So the highest guy on the street thought we'd get 312,000 jobs. And instead, we got 379. So a big beat. And on top of that, the prior month's 49,000 was revised upward to 166,000. So this, again, more evidence. And initially, the bond market... Uh, got hit again. Yields were all the way up today. On the 10-year, we hit a new cycle high of 1.626 on the 10-year before pulling back. Yields just closed slightly positive at one spot, 554. The yield on the 30-year didn't quite make a new high for the move, uh, but it was higher this morning. It actually settled off down a bit at 2.288. The intraday high was two spot three five one, and there was a sell-off on those stronger than expected jobs numbers. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. 
From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In addition to the beat on the number of jobs added, we did have a slight reduction in the unemployment rate from 6.3 to 6.2. But remember, even uh, Jerome Powell admits that that number is very deceiving. He still thinks the real unemployment rate is north of 10%, uh, given how the numbers are being counted. And I agree. In fact, it's probably a lot higher than that. But if, again, if you look at the real numbers, the main gain was in the service sector, 75% of the gains in the service sector were in um, restaurants and bars. 75% of these gains, so the 379,000 jobs created, were waiters and bartenders. We only had 21,000 manufacturing jobs created, and that's on top of the 14,000 that were lost in the prior month. So over those two months, what, we gained... 7,000 manufacturing jobs total in the month of uh, January and February. Yeah, again, that's why we have to import so many manufactured goods because Americans are simply not working to produce those goods. Instead, you know, we're waiting tables and tending bar. But here's the thing that doesn't even make any sense to me. Why is the market getting so excited about waiters and bartenders returning to their jobs? I mean, it's obvious that that was going to happen. I mean, the economy is opening up. States are relaxing their restrictions. People are getting the vaccine. So some people are going to restaurants and bars. And so some of those bars are recalling their bartenders and their waiters and their waitresses. I mean, why is this a shocker? I mean, this is not job creation. These are the jobs that were on hold. I mean, the jobs were there. It's just that the people weren't going to work because of the shutdown. So sure, they're going to return to work. That's expected. But what people don't understand is what about all the unemployed waiters and bartenders who are not gonna return to work? What happens to them? Because even though the economy is opening back up, a lot of the restaurants and bars are not. They're shut for good. They are never coming back. So these people are not going back to work because they don't have any work to go back to. That's what people haven't seemed to grasp, that reality. And another thing that people are overlooking about the whole you know, restaurant industry is the restaurant industry is obviously going to be a lot smaller coming out of the pandemic than it was going into the pandemic because so many restaurants have closed. And of course, you know, a lot of these restaurants that are reopening, 
they are reopening with all sorts of risks that they never even imagined existed. Because who knows how long the economy is going to be open before it's shut down again. Maybe there's a relapse. Maybe there's another strain of COVID that comes out. Or maybe there's a COVID-20 or who knows what's going to happen. We now have a protocol for how we handle uh, an infectious disease. We shut the whole economy down, especially bars and restaurants, because they're non-essential. Right. So if you're operating one of these non-essential businesses, I mean, look out. I mean, you better have a pretty big war chest of money unless you're just going to hope for another PPP program to bow you out. But the risks of operating a restaurant or a bar have gone up considerably since we've adopted this new protocol and the risks were already there. I mean, if you were to start a new restaurant, most new restaurants fail. They don't even make it. It's a very risky business to get into. Well, the U.S. government now set the, the protocol for a much greater risk. Everybody now has to run the risk of having to shut down their restaurant because of a disease. And so a lot of people are going to think twice before getting back into this industry. And a lot of the restaurants that closed, the people lost so much money on the bar, they're, they're done. They're not going back to, to these, to these uh, restaurants. But the restaurants that do reopen, they're going to have higher costs, higher insurance costs, more regulation obviously coming during the Biden term, especially if we get a minimum wage hike, which is going to cause their labor costs to go up. Plus, I'm sure a lot of their workers are going to be demanding raises anyway, the ones that are going back to work. After all, their cost of living is going up. But it's not just the energy prices which are going up. And of course, that affects the restaurants. They have to cook the food. That requires energy. They got to, you know, run the uh, the lights or the air conditioners or the heaters. So their utility bills are going to be going up, but they're serving food. The price of food is going up. So the price of everything that they're serving at the restaurants is going up. And there's going to be less competition because there's going to be fewer restaurants to choose from. So what does that mean about the cost of eating at a restaurant? It is going to go way up. So a lot fewer people are going to be able to afford to eat in restaurants anyway. So that's another reason that the restaurant industry is going to be so much smaller is because far fewer people will actually be able to afford the higher prices that will now be required to dine in a restaurant. So both those things happen. You have fewer restaurants, so the price goes up. And because the price goes up, fewer people can afford to eat in restaurants, so you need fewer restaurants. The whole industry is going to be uh, contracting, and that means a lot of the jobs are not coming back. So what are these ex-waiters and waitresses and bartenders going to do? Well, the problem is there's not going to be a lot of alternatives because the economy is so screwed up. Uh, the regulations are so onerous. The Fed has got this gigantic bubble. We are not going to have the jobs to replace the lost jobs. If we had a real vibrant free market economy, sure, people who lose jobs in one industry could find jobs in another, but that's not going to happen, especially when the government is making it even harder by incentivizing people who lost their jobs not to go back to work because they're going to make them a better deal not working with uh, extended unemployment benefits and all sorts of other goodies and stimulus checks that are likely to keep on going throughout the entire Biden term. So why would any of these people go back to work? So contrary to the way uh, Wall Street is spinning this government jobs report, this is not a strong report. Right? It is not strength that the people that were ordered not to go to work have now been allowed to come back. And obviously, once you open up the bars and the restaurants, 
those that didn't shut permanently are going to bring people back. So initially, you're going to see a surge of uh, new jobs as the restaurants that did reopen bring back their former employees. But then what happens? Because all the restaurants that aren't going to reopen are not going to bring them back as they don't need them. So you're going to get a jump in these uh, job creation numbers. But meanwhile, everybody is ignoring these unemployment claims. And I just mentioned, I think 730,000 people lost their jobs last week. I mean, that dwarfs the 379,000 additional jobs that we got in this payroll report for the month. So we're still hemorrhaging jobs. So the economy is weak. In fact, look at the hours work component of the jobs numbers. It went down from 34.9 hours per week to 34.6. So the people have jobs, but they're working fewer hours. In fact, one of the more daunting uh, numbers that we got on the labor market came out yesterday. It was the productivity and cost numbers, and it showed non-farm productivity in the fourth quarter dropped by 4.2% with U.S. businesses. That's a big drop. I mean, the prior quarter it was down by 4.8%, so not quite as big a drop, but still pretty big. But look at the labor cost, unit labor cost up 6% on the quarter after being up 6.8% on the prior quarter. So companies are less productive and their labor costs are higher. This again is why prices are going up because we're less productive. If you want lower prices, you need higher productivity. We're not getting that. We're getting lower productivity and therefore we're getting higher prices. And on top of all that, we're getting more money printing, which is a good segue into the interview that basically shocked the markets for some reason yesterday. And that is the Jerome Powell uh, televised interview with the Wall Street Journal. The big topic during that interview was the rise in long-term interest rates and whether or not the Fed was concerned about it and if the Fed was planning on doing anything about it. So obviously, the markets are listening with great interest at Jerome Powell's response to this problem of rising long-term interest rates and what, if any, solution the Fed has to offer. Well, the reporter did ask Powell, hey, you know, obviously the markets are worried about inflation, right? And they are pricing higher inflation into the yield curve. And so the market is raising long-term interest rates because they expect inflation, which is exactly right. I mean, it has nothing to do with economic growth. It has everything to do with inflation. And so, but Powell's response basically was that the market was wrong. Even though he was asked point blank, do you think the market is wrong? And he didn't actually give a yes or no answer to that question. Listening to what he says, that's basically what he is implying that the market is wrong because he does not think inflation is a threat. In fact, if you listen to what he said, he still thinks the threat is a lack of inflation. He still thinks that the Fed may not be able to achieve its goal of getting inflation to be as high as 2%. That's still what this guy is saying. And he is admitting that he thinks that there will be a pretty big jump in consumer prices around the middle of the year because of the comparisons with the same prices at the middle of last year because we had big drops as the economy was shut down. And so he's saying it's not a fair benchmark if you compare the prices now when they've snapped back 
to a artificially depressed level a year ago, yes, it's going to look like there's an inflation problem, but he's going to look past that problem to a normalization. So what he is telling the markets is, hey, I don't care if I see some hotter CPI numbers because I know they're transitory. I know that they don't mean anything. And what the Fed expects is after that big uh, blip up in inflation for inflation to come back down. And in fact, Powell is still looking back over the last 10 or 20 years and thinking that because we didn't have high inflation in the past, that we're not going to have high inflation in the future. In fact, he specifically talked about the fact that we did all this money printing. We had QE1, QE2, QE3. The Fed blew up its balance sheet after the Great Recession and the financial crisis, and we didn't have any inflation. And so we can do it again and not have any inflation. And that is a false sense of confidence. If, if, if he actually believes that, or maybe he's just using that you know, to tell a story, but if the Fed actually believes that, they're completely wrong. I mean, maybe, and I don't know if anybody at the Fed has actually considered this possibility, but what if the effects of all that money printing, which is actually the inflation, what if the lag, because all economists know that there is a lag between printing money and rising prices. I mean, it's not like you print the money and then right away prices shoot up. There is some type of lag. Maybe it's a year, maybe it's 18 months. Typically, there's some lag. The problem is sometimes the lag can last longer than you think, right? And maybe this time around, the lag just happened to be 10 years or more. Maybe what we're finally seeing now is the effects of the inflation that the Fed created a decade ago. Maybe the effects of the inflation they're creating now are happening even later, and they're going to be even worse. Look, one of the examples I remember from Econ 101 uh, was the analogy of the man in the shower. And this is an analogy that's supposed to apply to the Fed. But I guess the people at the Fed now, maybe they never took this class. Uh, But if you don't know the man in the shower analogy, I'll go over it uh, on the podcast right now. So you go into a shower and the water's cold. And so you turn up the temperature on the hot water and it's still cold. And so you turn it up a little more, but it's still too cold. It's a little warmer. And so you keep turning it hotter and, but it's not quite hot enough, right? But then all of a sudden there's burning, you know, scalding water that comes out of the shower and you've burned yourself, right? The reason is that the faucet acts as a lag. You immediately turn up the temperature and you expect the hot water to come right away, but it doesn't come right away. And so when it doesn't come right away, you don't think you've turned it up high enough. So you turn it up more and then you still don't feel the temperature. So you keep turning it and then you end up burning yourself because you over turned it. You, you made it too hot. Well, the the analogy to the economy is, hey, the Fed prints some money and then they look and they think, I look at the economy, they don't see any inflation. Oh, we can print some more money and they still don't see any inflation. Oh, we can print some more money. The problem is there's a lag between the printing of the money and the higher consumer prices. The problem is if they keep on printing money because they don't see a big surge in consumer prices, so they print more and they print more and they print more, They end up getting burned just like the man in the shower because all of a sudden, all that money printing hits the markets and prices skyrocket and it's too late to do anything about it. 
And so that is where we are headed now. So when they go back and they say, oh, you know, we don't have to worry about inflation in the future because we didn't have any inflation in the past, even though we printed all this money, we've already created the inflation. We just haven't dealt with the consequences yet. And to think that we can continue to create even more inflation and never suffer the consequences is absurd. But in any event, so Powell basically just downplayed the threat of inflation and said, look, if the markets are pricing at inflation, they're wrong and we're not worried. Now, I'm sure that when Powell made these statements, he expected the markets to embrace the statements. After all, he is downplaying their fears and he's saying, hey, there's nothing to be worried about. You're wrong. We're not going to have a big jump in inflation. And so we're not going to have to tighten policy because, again, that is what the concern is. That's what's driving uh, the dollar up a bit. That's what's pushing gold down. The idea that the Fed is going to have to raise interest rates sooner rather than later in order to put out this you know, smoldering inflation fire. And now here you have the Fed saying, hey, there's no fire. Don't worry. I don't have to put anything out because nothing's burning. So Powell probably thought he was providing some insurances to the market. He probably thought he was telling the market exactly what the market wanted to hear, except the market didn't believe the Fed because I think it is so obvious right now that inflation is a problem. To hear the Fed dismiss it and say that it's not a problem, I think creates a bigger problem because what I think a lot of these bond market vigilantes are thinking is, okay, wait a minute, the Fed is wrong. The Fed is missing an obvious inflation problem. And so the problem is going to have to get worse before the Fed can see it. And because the Fed is going to wait longer to try to put out the fire, it's going to be a bigger fire by the time they try to put it out. And so they're going to need you know, even more water. So this is scaring the bond market even more that the Fed is not going to fight the fire early, that the Fed is going to fight the fire late. But of course, what would scare the bejesus out of the bond market is if they knew the truth. The Fed's not going to fight the fire at all. That is the problem. It can't. The Fed can't fight inflation because inflation will win. It has to surrender without a fight because fighting inflation, as far as the Fed is concerned, the cure to inflation is worse than the disease of inflation. Now, of course, Powell can't say that. Powell can't admit, hey, don't worry about inflation. I'm not going to raise rates no matter how high inflation gets. He can't let that cat out of the bag because then the bonds will really get clobbered. The only thing that Powell could have said that maybe the markets would have liked, although we did get a rebound again today, although we'll see how how long that lasts. But probably what a lot of people wanted to hear was the Fed saying, hey, don't worry, the Fed's going to cap long-term interest rates. We're going to put a a ceiling on long-term interest rates and we won't let rates go above a certain level. So it doesn't matter what inflation is, because we don't think inflation is a problem. If the market thinks it's a problem, well, we're going to stop the market from raising interest rates on a problem that doesn't exist. And the way we're going to do that is with our balance sheet. The Fed is going to open-end QE. We're going to you know, buy whatever it takes. We're going to print money. And we're going to cap the yield on the 10-year or the whatever, the 30-year, the or do some kind of new updated version of Operation Twist. And the Fed is going to... Uh, put a ceiling on long-term interest rates. That's probably what the markets want to hear. But if the Fed does that, then the dollar crashes, especially if people realize 
that the Fed is going to have to ignore inflation. I mean, initially, the Fed might pretend we're doing it because we know there's not inflation, right? We know something that the markets don't, like the collective judgment of the guys on the Federal Open Market Committee. They're somehow smarter than all of the, uh, the, the bond market where they're trying to discover an interest rate in a free market and the Fed is trying to fix it, you know, in, in like a, a little Politburo uh, of, of, of rate setters. But if the Fed is trying to say we know better than the markets, but the real reason is it's not that the Fed is smarter than the markets about whether or not inflation is a threat. It's just that the Fed probably knows that the threat is much bigger than the markets understand. And the worst part about the threat is that they have no real way to prevent it. One of the points Powell kept stressing during the interview was that the Fed was focused on the unemployment rate and making sure that all the people who have lost their jobs during the pandemic get back to work. And so they're not going to uh, be likely to simply raise interest rates as they see the unemployment rate going down because they know there are a lot of people who are now out of the labor force that they expect will return to the labor force. And so they're not going to be particularly worried about falling unemployment when they realize that there's such a reservoir of workers who are not officially in the unemployment statistics, but who can still re-enter the labor market. And so the Fed is not going to raise rates simply because they see a drop in unemployment. Of course, the question I would love to see Powell ask, which of course he's not going to get asked and he has no answer for it, is what is the Fed going to do if unemployment is ticking up, but inflation is also well in excess of the Fed's acceptable target range, wherever that is. In other words, stagflation. What is the policy cure for that? Because the Fed has no policy cure because they assume it can't happen, but it very easily could happen. Look, if you continue to see big increases in food and energy prices, Americans are going to have to cut back on their other spending because they're spending more money on food and energy. They're going to have less money to spend in other areas of the economy, which means those businesses are affected by a reduction in demand. In addition, all businesses are going to be hit with rising costs. They're going to have rising input costs, rising labor costs, rising raw material costs, uh, energy costs, utilities, insurance, rising taxes potentially, also more regulation. So you have diminished demand, you have increased cost. How are employers going to deal with this? Well, one way is to cut labor costs, lay people off. So it's very possible that we're going to have a combination of increasing unemployment and rising inflation. That's the predicament that we were in in the 1970s. The U.S. economy was in much better shape structurally back then than it is now. If we could have stagflation during the 70s, we can have something much worse now. I talked about it as an inflationary depression. That's what I think we're, we're, we're coming to. We're going to get the simultaneous condition of prices going way up and unemployment going way up. Now, of course, the Fed is going to say, well, we're just going to have to ignore the inflation and focus on the unemployment. But what if the unemployment is a direct consequence of the inflation? The cost of living is rising so rapidly that it's sapping the real purchasing power of the consumer and it's causing businesses to have to lay workers off 
to deal with the rising costs. Then the only way to bring down unemployment is to bring down inflation. But the Fed is powerless to bring down inflation because they can't bring down inflation without bringing down the whole economy. Paul Volcker didn't want to let interest rates go to 20%, but that's what needed to be done to get the job done. Well, we can't get the job done because we have so much more debt now than we had when Volcker was chairing the Fed that the the cure will kill us. Now, I think death by deflation is better than death by hyperinflation. Unfortunately, the guys at the Fed don't understand that, and they're likely to choose the greater of the two evils because from their perspective, it's the lesser. You know, Powell mentioned in this uh, interview that he doesn't think inflation's a problem, and so they're not going to be raising rates anytime soon. They're going to ignore any temporary blips up in uh, prices because they're going to assume that they're transitory, and they're going to assume that the low inflation days of the past are going to be with us indefinitely into the future, regardless of how much money he printed. But he leaves the possibility open that the Fed is wrong, right? He says, well, we could be wrong, right? And if we are wrong, well, no big deal because we have the tools to deal with that, which is a laughable statement. The Fed doesn't really have the tools. I mean, it has the tools, but there's no way that it's going to use those tools because it will completely destroy the phony economy that it built. It's kind of like if somebody says, you know, if I ever get a headache, I've got the tools, right, to cure that headache. And the tool is a handgun, right? And so that's your tool to cure your headache. Now, let's say you get a headache. Are you really going to put the gun to your head and pull the trigger? Are you going to put a bullet in your head to cure the headache? Because, yeah, your headache will go away because you'll be dead. But if you have to kill yourself to get rid of your headache, you're not going to do it. How is the Fed going to solve a problem where inflation is worse than they thought? They have to basically put a bullet in, in the head of the economy. They have to kill it. And there's no way they're going to do that. So they don't have a tool that they're willing to use to deal with an unexpected outburst of inflation. Again, too, imagine how bad inflation is going to get before the Fed admits that they got it wrong, right? Because let's say the numbers shoot up by the middle of the year and we're printing uh, 3%, 3.5%, year-over-year inflation. And Powell's like, oh, no problem because it's just going to go back down below 2%. We'll just wait. So you wait another six months or a year. But while you're waiting, instead of the 4% inflation going down to 2%, what if it goes up to 6% or 7%? You're so far behind the curve while you're waiting for the curve to bend down. Now what do you do? How do you now run ahead of a curve where you're so far behind? How high would the Fed have to raise interest rates to deal with that big an inflation problem? And that is the problem because the wheels fell off the bus in uh, the fourth quarter of 2018, when rates were at two and a half percent, if the Fed lets inflation get to six or eight percent before it realizes it's not going back down below two, that it wasn't transitory, it can't raise rates to two or three percent. It has to raise them at 10 percent or 12 percent to get real rates positive. Is it possible to do that? Of course, it's impossible to do that. Look at the enormity of the debt. Look at the budget deficits. Look at all the leverage now in the new housing bubble that's been inflated. And it'll be even bigger by then. So the whole economy is a gigantic credit bubble, completely dependent on artificially low interest rates. And the whole thing would be destroyed if the Fed had to raise interest rates 
to fight inflation, which means they won't raise interest rates to fight inflation, which means inflation is going to win and it is going to destroy the savings of Americans. Now, if the currency traders knew that, if the gold traders understood this, gold would have gone up this week, not down. The dollar would have gone down, not up. And a lot of people are getting frustrated and they're looking at the fact that gold is not going up and they don't understand. The reason gold is not going up and the reason the dollar is, is because traders still think the Fed has inflation under control. Even if they're going to let it get a little hotter before they put out the fire, the confidence is still there that they will put it out. And they expect rates to go up and they think that's bad for gold. They think that's good for the dollar. They are wrong. If they understood that the Fed has no control over inflation, that all they can do is lie and pretend that it doesn't exist, that we're never going to have positive real interest rates, that they're going to be negative as far as the eye can see. If the markets knew the truth, then gold would be going up. It would be going to the moon. The dollar would be going through the floor. The reason these things are not happening is because people don't understand the truth. They will figure it out eventually. And when they do, they'll buy all the gold they can get their hands on. In the meantime, while they're in the dark and we can see the light, uh, we can get a better price by buying more for ourselves. And of course, this is also helping to fuel the Bitcoin bubble because people are looking at gold's failure to rise in the face of all this QE and all this money printing. And their conclusion is, well, gold is no longer the preferred inflation hedge. They see Bitcoin going up and they say, oh, Bitcoin must be the new gold because it's going up and we're having all this money printing. So people must be buying Bitcoin instead of buying gold. To some extent, that may be true at this point. But I think most of the people who are buying Bitcoin are buying Bitcoin instead of buying Tesla or some other you know, high-octane momentum stock. Because if you look at the correlation with Bitcoin, Bitcoin trades a lot more like a NASDAQ stock with no earnings than it trades like gold. I mean, it's being marketed as a store of value, safe haven. But the reality is it's an extremely risky digital token that trades like other risk assets, only it's even riskier than the riskiest stock. And so that's why it's going up. It's not going up because people are buying it as a safe haven store of value. They're buying it as a speculative way to make money. And it's being fueled by the same uh, money printing bubble that's fueling the rest of the NASDAQ. That's why if you looked at the trading this week, Bitcoin looked a lot like the NASDAQ. When the NASDAQ was tanking, Bitcoin was tanking. In fact, some of the weakest stocks in the NASDAQ are the stocks that are now associated with Bitcoin. In fact, all of the major uh, stocks that are involved with Bitcoin, every one of them is now in a bear market, which is down more than 20%. Those stocks are MicroStrategy, Tesla, Square, Twitter, PayPal, you know, Overstocks, uh, Galaxy Digital Holdings. All those stocks are down more than 20%. I mean, some are down a lot more. MicroStrategies is down more than 50%. These are all in bear markets. Uh, why? Well, you know, they're highly speculative and they're even more speculative because they're associated with Bitcoin. In fact, look at the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. That thing today, at one point, because it did turn around and close positive, but at one point earlier this morning, it was at almost a 20% discount to its NAV. In fact, it closed yesterday at about an 11% discount and intraday went to a 20% discount to NAV. And interestingly enough, 
the price today actually got below, below the high price for the same trust in December of 2017. So three years have gone by, more than three years. And if you bought the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust at the peak in 2017, and if you sold it at the low this morning, you actually lost money, even though the price of Bitcoin itself was up 240% uh, during those three years. And that's because you bought it at a premium and you sold it at a discount and you paid you know 6% in custody fees over those three years. But that is another prediction that I got right on, on Bitcoin. I predicted when the Grayscale Trust was at a significant premium that in the near future, we would see the trust trading at a discount. And that is exactly what's happening. And even though it recovered today and closed positive, it is still at a discount. And ever since it closed at a discount, it has been at a discount every single day. And this is going to be very problematic for Bitcoin because Grayscale is not going to be buying any more Bitcoin because they can't sell any new shares because they can't sell them at a discount to the price of the stock because the fund itself is trading to a discount, which means if anybody wants to buy Grayscale, they could just buy it in the market. They're not going to buy it at NAV when they can buy it at a discount. When it was trading at a huge premium and they can get it at NAV, they were making that trade all day long and Grayscale was taking all that cash and buying up Bitcoin. Now they're not doing it. So who's going to buy Bitcoin? I just heard today that MicroStrategy chipped in another $7 million as if they don't have enough money already in Bitcoin another 7 million. I mean, I think Michael Saylor is going to be throwing money down that rat hole in perpetuity, especially as the price of Bitcoin really starts to fall. He's going to feel obligated to keep buying and buying in an effort to prevent it from, from declining. I mean, so who knows how much good money he's going to throw after bad. And remember, a lot of this money was borrowed. They issued debt to buy these Bitcoin. The bottom line, though, is the markets have got this whole story completely wrong. It's not economic growth that is driving bond yields higher and oil prices higher. It's inflation. These prices are rising despite the fact that the economy is actually weak. Now, people don't think it's weak because they see people spending money, but they're spending money the government is printing. They're not spending the money that they're earning. And the proof, again, is the massive trade deficits. We are not making the things that we're buying. The economic growth is taking place outside the United States. All we're doing is buying what other people make, and we're paying for it with money that the Fed prints. And all this inflation is driving bond yields and oil prices and other prices higher, and that is going to continue. And the upward pressure on interest rates is going to be relentless. People are saying, well, what's the worry? How high can rates go? I mean, so what if they go to 2% or 2.5%? First of all, we already know what happened when they went to 2.5% in 2018. Everything collapsed and we had a lot less debt then than we have now, except rates are not going to stop there. They are going to keep on going. Rates are going to the moon if the Fed doesn't intervene. That's what people don't understand. And they're going to have to intervene on a massive, massive scale, given the enormity of the deficits. I mentioned earlier in the podcast, we are already running a four and a half trillion dollar budget deficit now. After this new stimulus bill, that takes it up to six and a half trillion. The deficits are enormous. The amount of money that's going to have to be printed is enormous. And now think about this national debt, which is going to hit top 30 trillion this year. A lot of that debt is going to mature. And a lot of the owners are not going to want to roll it over. So a lot of the debt that is currently owned by 
private investors or foreign governments, they're not going to want to keep that debt. The inflation rate is much higher than the nominal interest rate. So the Federal Reserve is not only going to have to monetize all these massive deficits, but they're going to have to print enough money to buy all the bonds that private holders or, or foreign governments don't want to roll over. I mentioned before on the podcast, they have to subsidize the huge deficit with Social Security. So this is massive, massive money printing. At some point, the Fed is going to do exactly what some people were hoping. They are going to announce a program to put a lid on interest rates, to price fix interest rates. They won't admit why they're doing it. They'll pretend that the market has got it wrong. Uh, But the reality is the market has it right. And the Fed is simply going to be there to prevent market forces from collapsing the entire bubble economy. But the only way the Fed can delay the day of reckoning and save the bond market and save the stock market and the real estate market and prop up the government is to sacrifice the dollar. That's its only card that it, and it's going to play it. And the dollar is going to get killed and gold's going to soar. And so before that happens, you just got to get out of dollars and get into these foreign assets and, you know, get into these um, emerging markets and commodity type stocks. I mean, these are going to be the inflation hedges. These are the real uh, ways to avoid the inflation tax and to get out of Dodge and protect yourself. Don't get fooled by what's happening in the very short term and jump to the wrong conclusions based on what you're looking at. Because the problem is the vast majority of investors have no idea what's going to happen. And so what they're doing with other people's money reflects their misunderstanding of the current state of the economy and what's likely to happen. Just like they were completely blindsided by the 2008 financial crisis, they are equally oblivious to the crisis that's coming, which is going to dwarf the one we had in 2008. In fact, there was really no way that Jerome Powell could have handled that interview and answered those questions. In fact, maybe he should refrain from doing any interviews in the future. Maybe they'll think twice before they do them again, because really Powell is damned if he does and damned if he does. It doesn't really matter what his answer is, because the Fed is finally caught between the rock and a hard place that I've been forecasting since the beginning. Look, either they could admit that inflation is a problem and they're going to do something about it and the markets are going to get killed or the Fed can pretend that inflation is not a problem and so they don't have to do anything about it and then the markets still get killed because the markets know that there is a problem and they just expect the Fed to solve it later rather than sooner, which means it becomes a bigger problem. But again, the one thing that Powell doesn't want to do or can't do is tell the complete truth. And that's that, yes, inflation is a problem, but we're never going to do anything about it because that is the real problem. And that is the truth that they can't tell because to tell that truth is to unleash, you know, the complete collapse. I mean, in the, you know, the words of Jack Nicholson, they can't tell the truth because they know the markets can't handle the truth. So they continue to tell lies. But the problem is now the markets can't even handle the lies. 